Well, when I was in college, I got a job at BCYC, the Belton Christian Youth Center, if you've heard of that. And when I took the job, the intention was that I was going to be the guy that would run the sports stuff. So play dodgeball with the kids, play basketball with the kids. But the weekend before I was to start the job, I tore my MCL in my knee. And I won't go into that story, but basically it involved a boat, a tube, a girl, me who liked the girl, and the guy who was driving the boat who I'm convinced to this day also liked that girl. Well, you can figure that one out. We won't go into it. Um, so when I showed up to BCYC that following Monday, I showed up on crutches. And the people in charge, when they saw me, they're like, well, you're not going to be able to play dodgeball. You can't play basketball. So they had the grand idea to put me with the kindergartners and the first graders. And I thought, sweet, this will be easy. We'll just get some coloring books. We'll sing some songs, maybe put on some VeggieTales. And I walked into the classroom, and there were, no joke, 50 of those little boogers, okay? 50 of them. And the people in charge were like, good luck. And they abandoned me there with them. And to this day, it was one of the most traumatic experiences of my life. I'm not kidding. These kids took the crowns that I gave them, and they began to color the walls. They started hitting each other. They started biting each other. One kid bit me so hard, I bled. Another kid, and I'm not kidding, this isn't like that pastor who's trying to you know, elaborate a joke to make you laugh. One kid tried to take my crutches and hit me with it. And I, was, I remember sitting there in that moment, looking around at the chaos and just thinking, who taught you that? Like, did your parents sit you down one day and go, here's the deal. If you ever, here's the deal. If you see anyone with crutches, ever, you just grab the crutch by the skinny end and just whack them with it. Like, do you teach your kids that? On which side of the crutch you should hit somebody with? Now, of course, their parents didn't teach them that, but something inside them drove them to do that. And I say this all kind of jokingly, but we've all had these moments, right, where, where we look around at the world, we took, take a hard look at ourselves, and we ask the question, where did this evil come from, right? Where did this come from, when you look at some of the things that even you've done, things that you never thought you would do, that, that at some point in your life, you never thought you were capable of doing what you did, and you made a conscious decision to do something that you knew wasn't right. Or maybe, when you think about some of the things that have been done to you, like there are some of you in here who have legit trauma. Evil has been done to you. And we have to ask the question, why? We, we've all been in those moments where you look around at your life and the world around you, and you go, something isn't right here. Something's wrong, and we have to face the harsh reality of sin. And we begin to ask questions like, if God is so loving, then why did this happen to me? Why does God feel so distant sometimes? Why did that happen to my kids? How come this world can hurt me so easily? And so today, today to start off, we'll ask will answer the questions, where did sin come from, how bad is it, and what is God going to do about it? And that story starts in Genesis 3, in the fall of man. So let me read to you verse 1 again. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God has made. Now we have to ask the question here, who's the serpent? And if you want to know who the serpent is, you actually, this is interesting, you actually have to wait until Revelation to find clearly who the serpent is. In Revelation 12, 9, it says, The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent 
who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So the name devil means accuser and Satan means adversary. So right here at the beginning of the Bible, we see that within God's perfect world, he has allowed to exist an accuser and an adversary to his purposes. So where does evil come from? It comes from the accuser, the adversary of God, one who would set his purposes to destroy the things of God. And this accuser and adversary in this moment comes with an offer, okay? And humanity will get its first test. I want you to notice something. Notice that this serpent is described as crafty. Now that word crafty is not an inherently evil term. Proverbs tells us that we should be crafty. Yet the serpent uses an attribute that is meant for good and he uses it for evil. And this is how all sin begins. It's taking something that is naturally good and distorting it. So when the accuser comes, he looks crafty. He looks inviting. And I want you to notice something else. Notice how the serpent speaks to Eve. It says, he said to the woman, did God actually say? Now, question for you. What does the serpent call God? God. Easy questions today. Don't worry. He calls, him, he, got, he calls him God. Now, go with me to Genesis chapter 2. Just turn one page back. And I want you to see something. What is God called all throughout Genesis chapter 2? You can start in verse 4, and you can see it. The Lord God. And if you just read through, verse 4, the Lord God. Verse 5, the Lord God. Verse 7, the Lord God. Verse 8, verse 9. Verse 15, verse 16, verse 18, verse 21. Verse 22, all the way to chapter 3, verse 1, God is called the Lord God. So, When you see these two names together, Lord God, it's communicating something very specific, okay? Lord means Yahweh. So it's the covenant name for God and his people. It communicates relationship, love, provision. It's a personal name for God. It's meant to create intimacy. So when the Lord God is creating the earth, he's creating Adam and Eve. It's not just done with power and authority, but it's with intimacy, love, and care. Now, the name God is the name Elohim. It literally means almighty. It emphasizes his power, his sovereignty, his greatness. So when you put them together, Lord God, it communicates all power, but caring and intimate and loving. That this God can do as he wishes, but he wishes to be gentle, to be kind, to love. It's what a father is supposed to be, powerful, but kind and gentle. Now, Read the second part of Genesis 3, 1 again. He said to the woman, did God actually say? He removes the Lord. He calls him God, and all of a sudden, the serpent removes the intimacy of God from Eve. He makes God out to be some kind of cosmic jerk. And then look at how Eve responds to the serpent's question. It says, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but then look at what she calls God. But God said, she drops the name Lord. The core of sin is a distrust in the goodness and character of God. In a matter of moments, the serpent has successfully removed intimacy with God from Eve. In a matter of moments, sin is choosing that something else will give us pleasure more than God is. And when we remove intimacy from God in our life, sin is easy to find because he's not all that good. The most important moment in the story is not when Eve eats the apple, but it's this moment. 
It's when she removes herself from intimacy with God. When she saw God as this all-powerful being that does not care for her, when she thought of God as someone who was holding something back from her, that pleasure and satisfaction could be found outside of him. Sin starts not with the apple, but with the heart. It starts with the heart. That's the core of our hearts. We think maybe, maybe God isn't really that good. Maybe he, he doesn't really care for me. That sin in Genesis 3 doesn't start with an action, but it's when Eve begins to question God's character. Do you see it? It's no different with us. And more than that, not only does she question God's character, but she actually questions God's words. Now, Adam and Eve had only been given a couple commands. Like, it wasn't that hard to follow. And so when the serpent asked him the question, asked her the question, did God actually say, she's going to repeat those commands back to him, but she's going to jack up God's commands in three different ways, okay? It says, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, God did not say that you can eat fruit. It was more than that. It was more than that. Genesis 2.16, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Some translations say you may eat, eat. That God was saying, I have created this place for you. I want you to enjoy life with me. And here in this moment, she says, well, we can have some fruit. We get some fruit. And she undervalues the gifts that God has given her. Then she says that we can't touch the tree. Now, did God actually say that she can't touch the tree? No. She just said you can't eat from it. Like, Eve can touch the tree. She can carve Adam and Eve, like, with a heart around A and E. Like, she can carve their names in the tree. She can put a swing in the tree. She can build a fort in the tree. She just can't eat the tree's fruit. And she adds, listen to what she does. She adds restrictions to what she can and can't do. She takes God's word and she adds restrictions to it. And she claims that it was God that put those restrictions on her. Does that sound familiar? That's legalism. Adding something that even God has even asked of us. It's questioning the sufficiency of his word. She makes God a killjoy that he never set himself out to be. And I've met so many people that when they think about God, they think of him as this cosmic being who just sucks the life, sucks the life out of us. And there's no fun here. And when the enemy removes the intimacy of God from you, then it's easy to think that way. When he removes the intimacy from you, it's easy to think of him as this being that is just trying to control your life. And the last way she distorts the word of God is she says, if we touch the tree, we will die. And that's not entirely what he said. God said, you will surely die. If you do what I have commanded you not to do, then you will surely die. See, she has an incredibly low view of the blessings of God. He isn't that good. But she also has an incredibly low view of the judgment of God. He isn't that just. And for the first time in human history, God's word is put into question. Did God actually say and it's no different today, where we as humans say, well, you can't determine what is right and wrong. You can't determine what is true. What might be true for me may not be true for you. My truth is my truth, and your truth is your truth. And everything is open to interpretation. God's word is put into question. And listen, look, when that happens, when God's word is put into question, everything falls apart. Everything. Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. 
For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And it says, she took of its fruit and ate. And for the first time, sin is introduced into a perfect world, and it affects everything. I mean, look at it. Immediately, you see the consequences in verse 7. The eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And you see the first consequence of sin here is guilt. That was once, what was once innocent in chapter 2 is now guilt in chapter 3. Genesis 2, 25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And for the first time, they feel exposed and they feel guilty because of it. And then you see shame in verse 8. When they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day, the man and his wife did what? They hid. They hid. When they sensed the presence of God, they hide. They hide from God, the God who has created them, loved them, and cared for them. And they hide from him in their shame. Because here's the deal. They can't hide their shame. And you know this, right? When you're walking through, uh, through town, when you're even at home, when you come here especially, Man, you want so bad to just get rid of that shame that you feel. But you come in here and you feel exposed. You go to your family, your wife, your husband that you've offended, you feel exposed because you can't hide your shame. So what do we do as humans? We hide ourselves because we can't get rid of that shame. You don't have the power to do that. So they hide themselves because they can't hide their shame. And we remove ourselves. We hide ourselves from his word and we hide ourselves from his people because it's easier. Because we can have control over that because we can't get rid of our shame. The third consequence you see here is fear. But the Lord God, God called to the man and said to him, where are you? See, in this moment, it's not like God has lost Adam. He's not like, man, where did I put the man? You know, he, he's not like he can't find Adam. He knows where he is. He wants him to come out of hiding. And Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. You see that? I was afraid. What was once enjoyment in the presence of God is now fear. What will God do with me now? And then you see the next consequence, blame. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree? And he said, the woman. And then the woman said, the serpent. And we see this, right? When we sin, it's not our fault. It's our environment's fault. It's because the world is the way it is. It's our husband's fault. It's our spouse's fault. It's our kid's fault. It's their fault. And you see blame here. And it's all a result of sin because we are guilty. We are shameful and we are fearful. And there is nothing, nothing that we can do about it. And now, even today, all of us here, we all suffer the consequences of this moment. We suffer the consequences of Adam and Eve questioning God's character and questioning God's word and going against him. And so God begins to issue what is called the curse. I'm going to skip verse 14 and 15 because we'll come back to that later. But he issues the curse, and to, to, to Eve, he says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. So this act of giving life, which is supposed to be beautiful and joyful, will now be full of pain. And he says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. That strife that you feel with your spouse, that strife you feel with your children, that strife that we feel with one another, when you go onto Twitter and you feel the strife, it's because of sin, because sin was introduced into a perfect World. And then he says to Adam in verse 17, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. So Adam, this world, this environment, it's, which you're supposed to steward over and care is now going to rage against you. 
And at the end of all things, you will return to dust. You will die. And we all suffer from this curse because either we all or have our will experience the sting of death because we are all now separated from God because as a holy God, he cannot, he cannot be in the presence of sin. It's impossible for him. And humanity in this moment is removed from fellowship with him. Get Romans 5, 12. He says, Paul says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. So all have fallen short. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We stand before God with a nature that is drastically opposed to God. And the result of our sinful nature is exactly what God promised, death. We get Ephesians 2, our Ephesians 2 text, and you were dead and the trespasses and sins. Now, if you look at that word dead there in the Greek, if you take the predicate, switch it with the pluperfect and move it to the right to the be aorist and add a subjunctive mood to it, it still means death. <laughs> the meaning doesn't change. It still means death, lifeless. The Bible doesn't have some kind of hidden meaning here. You don't need to read into the context. Because of your sin, you are dead, without hope. And so let's make sure we understand the gravity of the situation, right? If you have a problem, you need a solution that's of equal weight. So if you get a cut, what do you need? A Band-Aid, maybe some stitches. If you get the cold or the flu, then you maybe need some fluids and some rest. If you get cancer, you need specialists and chemo, maybe a surgery. If you're dead, you need a miracle. And so let's understand the gravity of the situation that Ephesians 2.3 says that because of this, because of our nature, we are children of wrath. Children of wrath. When the Bible searches for language to describe your state, my state, apart from Christ, the best language it can come up with is dead. That's how the Bible, God, chooses to explain to us who we are without Christ. Dead. But thankfully, neither Genesis 3 or Ephesians 2 stops there. Because when you see this, even in the midst of their sin in Genesis 3, God is moving the pieces to make everything right, that we see the pursuit of God to bring us back to him. Look at verse 9 again. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? So think about this in a different perspective, right? In the midst of their sin and shame, what does God do? He calls out to them. Adam and Eve, in this moment, are guilty before God. I am guilty before God. You, as much as you think that you've got it all figured out, you are guilty before God. But that's the beauty of the gospel, is that God seeks the guilty. He seeks the guilty. And when they eat from this tree, God does not desert them. He does not forsake them. He doesn't start over, but he seeks them. God has not forsaken you. He has not deserted you. He seeks you. And that's the story of the rest of your Bible. It's God seeking after the guilty, making a way to restore everything that has been broken. Abraham, the father of our faith, what was he doing before God came to him? He was worshiping false gods, idols. And God seeks after him and says, I will pour out my blessings upon you. Jacob, his name literally means deceiver. He's running from his sin, and God seeks out after him. Moses in Exodus 3, 
He's a murderer in hiding, and God seeks out after him. It is God who seeks after the guilty. Not only does he seek after the guilty, but he covers the shameful. Look at Genesis 3.21. I love this. He says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. And I want you to see this. So think about it. The God of the universe takes garments of skin and clothes Adam and Eve. So for the first time, we see death. It's not a person, but it's an animal. An animal's skin is taken to clothe the shamefulness of man and woman. So the skin of an animal is taken to clothe the shamefulness of humanity. Where do we see this? All throughout the rest of the Old Testament. The pattern begins here, that for the rest of the Old Testament, in order to approach God, there must be a sacrifice of an innocent animal that will cover your sin. And here in Genesis 3, right after sin is introduced into the world, God says, let me cover your shame. Let me cover your shame. Leviticus 16 describes sacrifices as atonement, that you will, they will, this innocence will atone for your forgiveness. And this is a picture of what will happen when an innocent man would, innocent man would die on the cross as a sacrifice. And his blood would cover our shame. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He covers the shameful. This means that when we approach him, he doesn't see our guilt. He doesn't see our shame. I want you to hear this. When you approach God, if you are in Christ, he does not see your guilt. He does not see your shame. Not because of anything that's in you, but because Christ's blood literally covers you. So when he sees you, he sees innocence. So he seeks out Adam and Eve in their guilt. He covers their shame, but he also makes a declaration here in Genesis 3. This is in verse 15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That word enmity there, it's the word war. So he says, I will put war between your offspring and her offspring. Now, what is the offspring of Satan? Well, it's obviously not that Satan would produce children, but what it does is it speaks to the stain of sin. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. That the stain of sin goes much deeper than we think. And as a result of the work of the enemy, that this work, what happened in this moment, will have influence over every human throughout history that the stain of sin goes deeper than we think. And then the, who's the offspring of Eve? That's the story of your Bible, that her offspring is tracked all the way throughout the Old Testament to Jesus. And he says, he, Jesus, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So this enmity, this war will culminate when the accuser and the adversary comes against Jesus. Verse 15 has been labeled the proto-evangelium, the first announcement of the gospel, that at the end of all things, Jesus will have the victory. He will defeat the enemy on the cross. And in, this, in Genesis 3, it's announced. And you can follow the thread all the way from Genesis 3 to Matthew. The end of all things, Jesus will defeat the enemy on the cross, that death will be defeated because three days later, Jesus will walk out of the grave as another declaration that the victory has been won and we can now be restored and made new 
by his grace. Remember that Romans 5 passage? Now look at verse 15 in Romans 5. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And so remember the problem. You are dead, and we need a solution that is of equal weight to that problem. Ephesians 2, 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. God didn't forgive you because you were a good bet. Sorry to break it to you. He forgives because of himself, because he is rich in covenant-making love, that ever since the beginning of all things in Genesis 3, when sin was introduced into the world, he has been moving the pieces to restore what was lost, that he declared to the accuser, you will, you will be defeated. And then he began to act through Abraham, through Moses, through Jacob, through David, through Ezekiel, all the way to Jesus, that he seeks the guilty, he covers the shameful, and he doesn't do it because of what he sees in me. He doesn't do it because of what he sees in you. He does it because that's who he is. That's his character. He is rich in mercy. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. He didn't come to make dad pe- uh, dad people, dead people good. He came to make dead people alive. And then in verse 6, it says, He's raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. For those of you who are visual learners, let's say you're this pin, right? So you're this pin. And as a member of humanity, you are by nature a children, a child of wrath. And so if this is humanity, and you are the pin, you go wherever humanity goes, right? And inevitably, you are headed towards death. That's where humanity is going. That's where you are headed. The beauty of the gospel is that Christ has pulled you out of that. He's pulled you out. He's pulled you out of the grave, and he's placed you in his kingdom, covered by Christ's blood. So wherever Christ goes, you go. And it says he's raised us up and poured out to us immeasurable grace. And here's the deal. No one can pull you out of here. Doesn't matter what I say, what someone else in here says, doesn't matter what your parents say, doesn't matter what happens in your life. If you are his, you're his forever. And there's nothing you can do and nothing no one else can do and nothing the enemy can do that can change that. But so many of us are convinced that we don't belong here. We like, the enemy convinces us that we're not actually alive. That we think, oh, there's nothing good about me. There's nothing promising about me. I'm I'm worthless. I'm useless. And we forget that he has pulled you out of death and brought you into life and made you new. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The weirdest person on the planet, you may have your own answer for this, but the weirdest person on the planet is an arrogant Christian. Like, it makes no sense. You're dead, lifeless. You can't walk over to God and go, um, excuse me, sir, can you make me alive? Like you, it doesn't work like that. He reaches down into the grave and pulls you out. It's a gift. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. You didn't figure it out. That's why verse 9 says, no one may boast. Like, do you think when you get to heaven, 
you're going to show up and God's going to turn to everyone else there and go, look, he's here. All you other guys, you couldn't do it, but he could everyone give him a round of applause, right? You think that's going to happen? You think he's going to go, look, I know I put a whole bunch of different religions in front of you, but you chose the right one. Good job. You can come on in. You think that's going to happen? No, because you didn't do it. It's a gift. No one earns the smile of God. He smiles on you because of his son, because the blood of Christ covers you, because you are his workmanship. He's crafting you, restoring you, making you look more and more like him. And so here's the question as we close. Are you dead or are you alive? Because there's many people in here, it's like you may not like being described as dead, but you feel it. You feel the lostness of your heart. You feel the weight of your sin. Like you were scared to come here today because of what either we might think of you or what God may think of you. Or you're just plain out bored and you have no hope, no life, no joy when you think of the Lord. I want you to hear this. God is seeking you. He's pursuing you. He's chasing after you, and his blood will cover your shame. You just have to stop running. He calls out to you like, just like he called out to Adam. Now, if you're alive, first I would say there's many of us in here who probably need to drop our pride. First um, John 4 says, Beloved love, loved ones love, that the most natural thing for someone who understands the love and grace of God is not to take a position of power in this life. You have no power. We take a position of receiving love and giving love. And then second, I would say, if you're alive, then don't let the enemy convince you that you're dead. It's a lie. And I've met so many believers who they're so convinced that there's nothing good about them, that there's, they're, they're evil and they're sinful and they're not worthy of love. You are worthy of love because literally Christ has loved you. He loves you. A product of grace is confidence in who God has made you to be. That we would say, he has made me into something new. He chose me. My chains have been broken. 